Welcome to Near Death Experience Podcast. I'm Chaz Hathaway. You know, we've mentioned several times uh, Howard Storm's near death experience, but we have not yet explored it. And so today I'm going to read to you Howard Storm's experience as related on near death.com. And this is a one of the classics in near-death um, literature, in studies, and so forth, for a couple of reasons. One, it starts out as a very hellish experience. I mean, just a horrid um, beginning for him. But it don't worry, it uh, has a happy ending, But uh, including the fact that Howard comes back. <laughs> but uh, um, his insights become very valuable in near-death studies uh, because of some of the things that it brings to light. So, let's get started. Struggling to say goodbye to my wife, I wrestled with my emotions. Telling her that I loved her very much was as much of a goodbye as I could utter because of my emotional distress. Sort of relaxing and closing my eyes, I waited for the end. This was it, I felt. This was the big nothing, the big blackout, the one you never wake up from, the end of existence. I had absolute certainty that there was nothing beyond this life, because that was how really smart people understood it. While I was undergoing this stress, prayer or anything like that never occurred to me. I never once thought about it. If I mentioned God's name at all, it was only as a profanity. For a time, there was a sense of being unconscious or asleep. I'm not sure how long it lasted. But I felt really strange, and I opened my eyes. To my surprise, I was standing up next to the bed, and I was looking at my body laying in the bed. My first reaction was, This is crazy. I can't be standing here looking down at myself. That's not possible. This isn't, wasn't what I expected. This wasn't right. Why was I still alive? I wanted oblivion. Yet I was looking at a thing that was my body, and it just didn't have that much meaning to me. Not knowing what was happening, I became upset. I started yelling and screaming at my wife, and she just sat there like a stone. She didn't look at me, she didn't move, and I kept screaming profanities to get her to, to pay attention. Being confused, upset, and angry, I tried to get the attention of my roommate with the same result. He didn't react. I wanted this to be a dream, and I kept saying to myself, this has got to be a dream. But I knew that it wasn't a dream. I became aware that strangely I felt more alert, more aware, more alive than I'd ever felt in my entire life. All of my senses were extremely acute. Everything felt tingly and alive. The floor was cool, and my bare feet felt moist and clammy. This had to be real. I squeezed my fists, and I was amazed at how much I was feeling in my hands just by making a fist. Then I heard my name. I heard, Howard, Howard, come here. Wondering at first where it was coming from, I discovered that it was originating from the doorway. There were different voices calling me. I asked who they were, and they said, We're here to take care of you. We'll fix you up. Come with us. Asking again who they were, I asked them if they were doctors or nurse and nurses. 
They responded, quick, come and see, you'll find out. As I asked them questions, they gave evasive answers. They kept giving me a sense of urgency, insisting that I should step through the doorway. With some reluctance, I stepped into the hallway, and in the hallway was a fog or a haze. It was a light-colored haze. It wasn't a heavy haze. I could see my hand, for example, but people who were calling me were 15 or 20 feet ahead, and I couldn't see them clearly. They were more like silhouettes or shapes, and as I moved toward them, they backed off into the haze. As I tried to get close to them to identify them, they quickly withdrew deeper into the fog. So I had to follow into the fog deeper and deeper. These strange beings kept urging me to come with them. I repeatedly asked them where we were going, and they responded, Hurry up, you'll find out. They wouldn't answer anything. The only response was insisting that I hurry up and follow them. They told me repeatedly that my pain was meaningless and unnecessary. Pain is bull, they said. I knew that we had been traveling for miles, but I occasionally had the strange ability to look back and see the hospital room. My body was still there lying motionless on the bed. My perspective at these times was as if I were floating above the room looking down. It seemed millions and millions of miles away. Looking back into the room, I saw my wife and my roommate, and I decided they had not been able to help me, so I would go with these people. Walking for what seemed to be a considerable distance, these beings were all around me. They were leading me through the haze. I don't know how long. There was a real sense of timelessness about the experience. In a real sense, I am aware of how long it was, but it felt like a long time, maybe even days or weeks. As we traveled, the fog got thicker and darker, and the people began to change. At first, they seemed rather playful and happy, but when we had covered some distance, I felt a few of them began to get aggressive. The more questioning and suspicious I was, the more antagonistic and rude and authoritarian they became. They began to make jokes about my bare rear, which wasn't covered by my hospital dickey, and about how pathetic I was. I knew they were talking about me, and when I tried to find out exactly what they were saying, they would say, Shh! He can hear you! He can hear you! Then others would seem to caution the aggressive ones. It seemed that I could hear them warn the aggressive ones to be careful, or I would be frightened away. Wondering what was happening, I continued to ask questions, and they repeatedly urged me to hurry and stop asking questions. Feeling uneasy, especially since they continued to get aggressive, I continued return or I considered returning, but I didn't know how to get back. I was lost. There were no features that I could relate to. There was just the fog and the wet, clammy ground, and I had no sense of direction. All of my communication with them took place verbally, just as ordinary humans communicate ordinary human communication occurs. They didn't appear to know what I was thinking, and I didn't know what they were thinking. What was increasingly obvious was that they were liars, and help was farther away the more I stayed with them. 
Hours ago, I had hoped to die and end the torment of life. Now things were worse as I forced I was forced by a mob of unfriendly and cruel people toward some unknown destination in the darkness. They began shouting and hurling insults at me, demanding that I hurry along, and they refused to answer any question. Finally, I told them that I wouldn't go any further. At that time, they changed completely. They became much more aggressive and insisted that I was going with them. A number of them began to push and shove me, and I responded by hitting back at them. A wild orgy of frenzied taunting, screaming, and hitting ensued. I fought like a wild man. All the while, it was obvious that they were having great fun. It seemed to be almost a game for them, with me at the, as the centerpiece of their amusement. My pain became their pleasure. They seemed to want me to or want to make me hurt by clawing at me and biting me. Whenever I would get one off me, there were five more to replace the one. But this time it was almost, by this time, it was almost complete darkness, and I had the sense that instead of being, of there being 20 or 30, there were an innumerable host of them, each one set on coming in for the sport they got from hurting me. My attempts to fight back only provoked greater merriment. They began to physically humiliate me in the most degrading ways. As I continued to fight on and on, I was aware that they weren't in any hurry to win. They were playing with me just as a cat plays with a mouse. Every new assault brought howls of cacophony. Then, at some point, they began to tear off pieces of my flesh. To my horror... I realized I was being taken apart and eaten alive, slowly so that their entertainment would last as long as possible. At no time did I ever have any sense that the beings who seduced or attacked me were anything other than human beings. The best way I can describe them is to think of the worst imaginable person, stripped of every impulse to do good. Some of them seemed to be able to tell others what to do, but I had no sense of any structure or hierarchy or organizational sense. They didn't appear to be controlled or directed by anyone. Basically, they were a mob of beings totally driven by unbridled cruelty and passions. During our struggle, I noticed they seemed to feel no pain other than that they appeared to possess no special non-human or superhuman abilities. Although during my initial experience with them, I assumed that they were clothed, our intimate physical contact, I never felt any clothing whatsoever. Fighting well and hard for a long time, ultimately I was spent. Lying there exhausted amongst them, they began to calm down since there was no longer the amusement that I had been. Most of the beings gave up in disappointment because I was no longer amusing. But a few still picked and gnawed at me and ridiculed me for no longer being any fun. By this time, I had been pretty much taken apart. People were still picking at me occasionally, and I just lay there all torn up, unable to resist. Exactly what happened was... I'm not going to try to explain this. From inside me, I felt a voice, my voice, say, Pray to God. My mind responded to that. I don't pray. I don't know how to pray. 
This is a guy lying on the ground in the darkness, surrounded by what appeared to be dozens, if not hundreds and hundreds of vicious creatures who had just torn him up. The situation seemed utterly hopeless, and I seemed beyond any possible help, whether I believed in God or not. The voice again told me to pray to God. It was a dilemma, since I didn't know how. The voice told me a third time to pray to God. I started saying things like, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. God bless America! And anything else that seemed to have a religious connotation. And these people went into a frenzy, as if I had thrown boiling oil over them. They began yelling and screaming at me, telling me to quit, that there was no God and no one could hear me. While they screamed and yelled obscenities, they also began backing away from me as if I were poison. As they were retreating, they became more rabid, cursing and screaming that, I was that what I was saying was worthless and that I was a coward. I screamed back at them, Our Father who art in heaven, and similar ideas. This continued for some time until suddenly I was aware that they had left. It was dark, and I was alone, yelling things that sounded churchy. It was pleasing to me that these churchy sayings had such an effect on those awful beings. Lying there for a long time, I was in such a state of hopelessness and blackness and despair that I had no way of measuring how long it was. I was just lying there in an unknown place, all torn and ripped, and I had no strength. It was all gone. It seemed as if I were sort of fading out, that any effort on my part would expend the last energy I had. My conscious sense was that I was perishing or just sinking into darkness. Now, I didn't know if I was even in the world, but I did know that I was here. I was real. All my senses worked too painfully well. I didn't know how I had arrived there. There was no direction to follow, even if I had been physically able to move. The agony that I had suffered during the day was nothing compared to what I was feeling now. I knew then that this was the absolute end of my existence, and it was more horrible than anything I could possibly have imagined. Then a most unusual thing happened. I heard very clearly, once again in my own voice, something that I had learned in nursery Sunday school. It was a little song, Jesus loves me, yes I know. And it kept repeating, I don't know why, but all of a sudden I wanted to believe that. Not having anything left, I wanted to cling to that thought, and I inside screamed, Jesus, please save me. That thought was screamed with every ounce of strength and feeling left in me. When I did that, I saw, off in the darkness, somewhere, the tiniest little star. Not knowing what it was, I presumed it must be a comet or a meteor because it was moving rapidly. Then I realized it was coming toward me. It was getting very bright, rapidly. When the light came near, its radiance spilled over me, and I just rose up, not with my effort. I just lifted up. Then I saw, 
and I saw this very plainly. I saw all my wounds, all my tears, all my brokenness melt away, and I became whole in this radiance. What I did was to cry uncontrollably. I was crying, not out of sadness, but because I was feeling things that I had never felt before in my life. Another thing happened. Suddenly I knew a whole bunch of things. I knew things. I knew that this light, this radiance, knew me. I don't know how to explain to you that I knew it knew me. I just did. As a matter of fact, I understood that it knew me better than my mother or father did. The luminous entity that embraced me knew me intimately and began to communicate a tremendous sense of knowledge. I knew that he knew everything about me, and I was being unconditionally loved and accepted. The light conveyed to me that it loved me in a way that I can't begin to express. It loved me in a way that I had never known that love could possibly be. He was a concentrated field of energy, radiant in splendor, indescribable, except to say goodness and love. This was more loving than one can imagine. I knew that this radiant being was powerful. It was making me feel so good all over. I could feel its light on me, like very gentle hands around me. I could feel it holding me, but it was loving me with overwhelming power. After what I had been through, to be completely known, accepted, and intensely loved by this being of light surpassed anything I had known or could have imagined. I began to cry, and tears kept coming and coming, and we, I and this light, went up and out of there. We started going faster and faster out of the darkness, embraced by the light, feeling more feeling wonderful and crying, I saw off in the distance something that looked like a picture of the galaxy, except that it was larger and there were more stars than I had seen on earth. There was a greater center of brilliance. In the center, there was an enormously bright concentration. Outside the center, countless millions of spheres of light were flying out, entering and leaving what was a great beingness at the center. It was off in the distance. Then I, I didn't say it, I, I thought it, I said, put me back. What I meant by telling the, dark, the light to put me back was to put me back in the pit. I was so ashamed of who I was and what I had been all of my life that all I wanted to do was hide in the darkness. I didn't want to go toward the light anymore. I did, yet I didn't. How many times in my life had I denied and scoffed at the reality before me? And how many thousands of times had I used this, used it as a curse? What incredible intellectual arrogance to use the name as an insult? I was afraid to go closer. I was also aware that the incredible intensity of the emanations might disintegrate what I still experienced as my intact physical body. The being who was supporting me, my friend, was aware of my fear and reluctance and shame. 
for the first time, he spoke to my mind in a male voice and told me that if I was uncomfortable, we didn't have to go closer. So we stopped where we were, still countless miles away from the great being. For the first time, my friend, and I will refer to him in that context hereafter, hereafter said to me, you belong here. And there's a little note here that says that Howard believes his friend was Jesus Christ. And based on um, things that I've heard from him, that, that's absolutely consistent. He believed it was Jesus Christ that was with him. Facing all the splendor made me acutely aware of my lowly condition. My response was, No, you've made a mistake. Put me back. And he said, We don't make mistakes. You belong. Then he called out in a musical tone to the luminous entities who surrounded the great center. Several came and circled around us. During what follows, some came and went, but normally there were five or six or sometimes as many as eight with us. I was still crying. One of the first things these marvelous beings did was to ask, all with thought, are you afraid of us? I told them I wasn't. They said they could turn their brilliance down and appear as people, and I told them to stay as they were. They were the most beautiful, the most... As an aside, I'm an artist. There are three primary colors, three secondary, and six tertiary colors in the visible light spectrum. Here, I was seeing a visible light spectrum with at least 80 new primary colors. I was also seeing this brilliance. It's disappointing for me to try and describe because I can't. I was seeing colors that I had never seen before. What these beings were showing me was their glory. I wasn't really seeing them, and I was perfectly content. Having come from a world of shapes and forms, I was delighted with this new formless world. These beings were giving me what I needed at that time. To my surprise, and also distress, they seemed to be capable of knowing everything I was thinking. I didn't know whether I would be capable of controlling my thoughts and keeping anything secret. We began to engage in thought exchange, conversational, that was very natural, very easy and casual. And they used normal colloquial English. Everything I thought, they knew. They all seemed to know and understand me very well, and to be completely familiar with my thoughts and my past. I didn't feel any desire to ask for someone I had known, because they all knew me. Nobody could know me any better. It also didn't occur to me to try to identify them as uncle or grandfather. It was like going to a large gathering of relatives at Christmas and not being quite able to remember their names or who they are married to or how they're connected to you but you know that you are with your family. I don't know if they were related to me or not. It felt like they were closer to me than anyone I had ever known. Throughout my conversation with the luminous beings, which lasted for what seemed like a very long time, I was being physically supported by the being in whom I had been engulfed. We were in a sense completely stationary, yet hanging in space. Everywhere around us were countless radiant beings, like stars in the sky, coming and going. 
It was like a super magnified view of the galaxy, super packed with stars. And in the giant's radiant, let's see, in the giant radiance of the center, they were packed so densely together that individuals could not be identified. Their selves were in such harmony with the Creator that they were really just one. One of the reasons, I was told, that all the countless beings had to go back to their source was to become invigorated with this sense of harmony and oneness. Being apart for too long a time diminished them and made them feel separate. Their greatest pleasure was to go back to the sources of all life. Our initial conversation involved them simply trying to comfort me. Something that disturbed me was that I was naked. Somewhere in the darkness I had lost my hospital gown. I was a human being. I had a body. They told me this was okay. They were quite, quite familiar with my anatomy. Gradually I relaxed and stopped trying to cover my privates with my hands. Next they wanted to talk about my life. To my surprise, my life played out before me maybe six or eight feet in front of me, from beginning to end. The life review was very much in their control, and they showed me my life, but not from my point of view. I saw my, me in my life, and this whole thing was a lesson, even though I didn't know it at the time. They were trying to teach me something, but I didn't know it was a teaching experience because I didn't know that I would be coming back. We just watched my life from beginning to end. Some things they slowed down on and zoomed in on, and other things they went right through. My life was shown in a way that I had never thought of before. All of the things that I had worked to achieve, the recognition that I had worked for in elementary school, in high school, in college, and in my career, they meant nothing in this setting. I could feel their feeling of sorrow and suffering or joy as my life's review unfolded. They didn't say that something was bad or good, but I could feel it. And I could sense all those things they were indifferent to. They didn't, for example, look down on my high school shot putt record. They just didn't feel anything towards it, nor towards other things which I had taken so much pride in. What they responded to was how I interacted with other people. That was the long and short of it. Unfortunately, most of my interactions with other people didn't measure up with how I should have interacted, which was in a loving way. Whenever I did react during my life in a loving way, they rejoiced. Most of the time I found that my interactions with other people had been manipulative. During my professional career, for example, I saw myself sitting in my office playing with the college professor while a student came to me with a personal problem. I sat there looking compassionate and patient and loving while inside I was bored to death. I would check my watch under my desk as I anxiously awaited for the student to finish. I got to go through all those kinds of experiences in the company of these magnificent beings. When I was a teenager, my father's career put him into a high-stress, 12-hour-a-day job. Out of my resentment because of his neglect of me, he came home from work. I would be cold and indifferent toward him. This made him angry, and it gave me further excuse to feel hatred toward him. He and I fought, and my mother would get upset. Most of my life, I had felt that my father was the villain, and I was the victim. 
When we reviewed my life, I got to see how I had precipitated so much of that myself. Instead of greeting him happily at the end of the day, I was continually putting thorns in him in order to justify my hurt. I got to see when my sister had a bad night one night, how I went into her bedroom and put my arms around her, not saying anything. I just lay there with my arms around her. As it turned out, that experience was one of my biggest triumphs in my life. The entire life's review would have been emotionally destructive and would have left me a psychotic person if it hadn't been for the fact that my friend and my friend's friends were loving me during the unfolding of my life. I could feel that love. Every time I got a little upset, they turned the life's review off for a while, and they just loved me. Their love was tangible. You could feel it on your body. You could feel it inside you. Their love went right through you. I wish I could explain it to you, but I can't. The therapy was their love, because my life's review kept tearing me down. It was pitiful to watch, just pitiful. I couldn't believe it. And the thing is, it got worse as it went on. My stupidity and selfish as a teenager only magnified as I became an adult, all under the veneer of being a good husband, a good father, and a good citizen. The hypocrisy of it all was nauseating. But through it all was their love. When the review was finished, they asked, Do you want to ask any questions? And I had a million questions. I asked, for example, what about the Bible? They responded, what about it? I asked if it were true, and they said it was. Asking them why it was that when I tried to read it, all I saw were contradictions, they took me back to my life's review again, something that I had overlooked. They showed me, for the few times I had opened the Bible, that I had read it with the idea of finding contradictions and problems. I was trying to prove to myself that it wasn't worth reading. I observed to them that the Bible wasn't clear to me. It didn't make sense. They told me it contained spiritual truth, and that I had to read it spiritually in order to understand it. It should be read prayerfully. My friends informed me that it was not like other books. They also told me, and I later found out this was true, that when you read it prayerfully, it talks to you. It reveals itself to you, and you don't have to work at it anymore. My friends answered lots of questions in funny ways. They really knew the whole tone of what I asked them, even before I got the questions out. When I thought of a question in my head, they really understood them. I asked them, for example, which was the best religion. I was looking for an answer which was like Presbyterians. I figured these guys were all Christians. The answer I got, the best religion is the religion that brings you closest to God asking them if there were life on other planets, their surprising answer is that the universe is full of life. Because of my fear of a nuclear holocaust, I asked if there were going to be a nuclear war in the world, and they said no. That astounded me, and I gave them this extensive explanation of how I li had lived under the threat of nuclear war. That was one of the reasons I was who I was. I figured when I was in life that it was all sort of hopeless. The world was going to blow up anyway, and nothing made much sense. In that context, I could do what I wanted since nothing mattered. 
they said, no, there isn't going to be any nuclear war. I asked if they were absolutely sure there wasn't going to be nuclear war. They assured me again, and I asked them how they could be so sure. Their response was, God loves the world. They told me that, at the most, one or two nuclear weapons might go off accidentally if they weren't destroyed, but there wouldn't be a nuclear war. I then asked them how come there had been so many wars. They said they allowed those few to happen out of all the wars that humanity tried to start. Out of all the wars that humans tried to create, they allowed a few to bring people to their senses and to stop them. Science, technology, and other benefits, they told me, had been gifts bestowed on humanity by them through inspiration. People had literally been led to those discoveries, many of which had later been perverted by humanity to use for its own destruction. We could do too much damage to the planet. And by the planet, they meant all of God's creation. Not just the people, but the animals, the trees, the birds, the insects, everything. They explained to me that their concern was for all the people of the world. They weren't interested in one group getting ahead of other groups. They want every person to consider every other person greater than their own flesh. They want everyone to love everyone else completely, more even than they love themselves. If someone, someplace else in the world hurts, that we should hurt or we should feel their pain and we should help them. Our planet has evolved to the point, for the first time in our history, that we have the power to do that. We are globally linked, and we could become one people. The people that they gave the privilege of leading the world into the, a better age blew it. That was us in the United States. When I spoke with them about the future, and this might sound like a cop-out on my part, they made it clear to me that we have free will. If we change the way we are, then we can change the future which they showed me. They showed me a view of the future at the time of my experience based upon how we in the United States were behaving at that time. It was a future in which a massive worldwide depression would occur. It, if it were to change our behavior, however, then the future would be different. Asking them how it would be possible to change the course of many people, I observed that it was difficult, if not impossible, to change anything on earth. I expressed the opinion that it was a hopeless task to try. My friends explained quite clearly that all it takes to make a change was one person. One person trying, and then because of that, another person changing for the better. They said that the only way to change the world was to begin with one person. One would become two, which would become three, and so on. That's the only way to effect a major change. I inquired as to where the world would be going in an optimistic future, one where some of the changes they desired were to take place. The image of the future that they gave me then, and it was their image, not one that I created, surprised me. My image had previously been sort of like Star Wars, where everything was space age, plastics, and technology. The future that they showed me was almost no technology at all. What everyone, absolutely everyone, in this euphoric future spent most of their time doing 
was raising children. Their chief concern of people was children. And everybody considered children to be the most precious commodity in the world. And when a person became an adult, there was no sense of anxiety or hatred, nor competition. There was this enormous sense of trust and mutual respect. If a person in this view of the future became disturbed, then the community of people all cared about the disturbed person falling away from the harmony of the group. Spiritually, through prayer and love, the others would elevate the afflicted person. What people did with the rest of their time was that they gardened with almost no physical effort. They showed me that plants with prayer would produce huge fruits and vegetables. People in unison would control the climate of the planet through prayer. Everybody would work with mutual trust, and the people would call the rain when needed and the sun to shine. Animals lived with people in harmony. People in this best of all worlds weren't interested in knowledge. They were interested in wisdom. This was because they were in a position where anything they needed to know in the knowledge category, they could receive simply through prayer. Everything to them was solvable. They could do anything they wanted to do. In this future, people had no wanderlust because they could spiritually communicate with everyone else in the world. There was no need to go elsewhere. They were so engrossed with what they were with where they were and the people around them, that they didn't have to go on vacation. Vacation from what? They were completely fulfilled and happy. Death in this world was a time when the individual had experienced everything that he or she needed to experience. The, to die meant to lie down and let go. Then the spirit would rise up and the community would gather around. There would be great rejoicing because they all had insight into the heavenly realm. And the spirit would join with the angels that came down to meet them. They could see the spirit leave and knew that it was time for the spirit to move on. It had outgrown the need for growth in this world. Individuals who died had achieved all they were capable of in this world in terms of love, appreciation, understanding, and working in harmony with others. The sense I got of this beautiful view of the world's future was as a garden, God's garden. And in this garden of the world, full of all beauty, were people. The people were born into this world. The, the people were born into this world to grow in their understanding of the Creator. Then to shed this skin, this shell, in the physical world, and to graduate and move up into heaven there to have more intimate and growing relationship with God. Now I'm going to pause for a second and say that there is more that takes place in his experience, which we will um, skip and and we will go on to some uh, simply because I don't have it. it it's not on the uh, near-death.com uh, site, but he does have a book called My Descent into Death, A Second Chance at Life by uh, Howard Storm. But we will continue where the uh, where it picks up on the website um, because there is several communications and experiences that he has between you know these experiences that are shared on the website. So he goes on and he says, I asked my friend and his friends about death. What happens when we die? They said that when a loving person dies, 
Angels come down to meet them and they will take him up gradually at first because it would be unbearable for a person to be instantly exposed to God. Knowing what's inside of every person, the angels don't have to prove anything by showing off. They know what each person needs, so they will provide that. In some cases, it may be a heavenly meadow, or in another, something else. If a person needs to see a relative, the angels will bring that relative. If the person really likes jewels, they will show the person jewels. We see what is necessary for our introduction into the spirit world. And those things are real in the heavenly, the divine sense. They gradually educate us as spirit beings and bring us into heaven. They grow, or we grow and increase, and grow and increase, and shed the concerns, desires, and base animal stuff that we've been fighting much of our life. Earthly appetites melt away. It's no longer a struggle to fight with them, or to fight them. We become who we truly are, which is part of the divine. This happens to loving people, people who are good and love God. They made it clear to me that we don't have any knowledge or right to judge anybody else in terms of that person's heart relationship to God. Only God knows what's in a person's heart. Someone who we think is despicable, God might know as a wonderful person. Similarly, someone we think is good, God may see as a hypocrite with a black heart. Only God knows the truth about every individual. God will ultimately judge every individual, and God will only or will and God will allow people to be dragged into darkness with like-minded creatures. I have told you from my personal experience what goes on in there. I don't know from what I saw any more than that, but it's my suspicion that I only saw the tip of the iceberg. I deserved to be where I was. I was in the right place at the right time. That was the place for me, and the people I was around were perfect company for me. God allowed me to experience that, and then removed me because he saw something redeeming in putting me through the experience. It was a way to purge me. People who are not allowed to be pulled into darkness because of their loving nature are attracted upwards toward the light. I never saw God, and I was not in heaven. It was way out in the suburbs, and these are the things that they showed me. We talked for a long time about many things, and then I looked at myself. When I saw me, I was glowing. I was radiant. I was becoming beautiful, not nearly as beautiful as them, but I had a certain sparkle that I never had before. Not being ready to face earth again, I told them that I wish to be with them forever. I said, I'm ready. I'm ready to be like you and be here forever. This is great. I love it. I love you. You're wonderful. I knew that they would, or that they loved me and knew everything about me. I knew that everything was going to be okay from now on. I asked if I could get rid of my body, which was definitely a hindrance, and become a being like them with the powers they had shown me. They said, no, you have to go back. They explained to me that I was very underdeveloped and that it would be a great deal of, it would be a, of great benefit to return to my physical existence to learn. 
in my human form, I would have the opportunity to grow so that the next time I was with them, I would be more compatible. I would need to develop important characteristics to become like them and to be important, or sorry, and to be involved in the work they were doing. Responding that I couldn't go back, I tried to argue with them and I observed that if I bear that thought, the thought that I might wind up in the pit again, uh, I pled with them to stay. My friends then said, Do you think that we expect you to be perfect? After all the love we feel for you, even after you were on earth blaspheming God and treating everyone around you like dirt, and this despite the fact that we were sending people to try to help you, to teach you, do you really think we would be apart from you now? I asked them. But what about my own self, uh, sense of failure? You've shown me how I can be better, and I'm sure I can't live up to that. I'm not that good. Some of my self-centeredness welled up in me, and I said, No way, I'm not going back. They said, There are people who care about you. Your wife, your children, your mother and father. You should go back for them. Your children need your help. I said, You can help them. If you make me go back there, uh, uh, if you make me go back, there are things that just won't work. If I go back there and make mistakes, I won't be able to stand it because you've shown me I could be more loving and more compassionate and I'll forget. I'll be mean to someone or I'll do something awful to someone. I just know it's going to happen because I'm a human being. I'm going to blow it and I won't be able to stand it. I'll feel so bad I will want to kill myself and I can't do that because life is precious. I might just go catatonic. So you can't send me back. They assured me that mistakes are an acceptable part of being human. Go, they said, and make all the mistakes you want. Mistakes are how you learn. As long as I tried to do what I knew was right, they said I would be all right or I would be on the right path. If I made a mistake, I should fully recognize it as a mistake and then put it behind me and simply try not to make the same mistake again. The important thing is to try one's best, keep one's standards of goodness and truth, and not compromise those to win people's approval. But, I said, mistakes make me feel bad. They said, we love you the way you are, mistakes and all, and you can feel our forgiveness. You can feel our love anytime you want to. I said, I don't understand. How do I do that? Just turn inward, they said. Just ask for our love and we'll give it to you if you ask from the heart. They advised me to recognize it when I made a mistake and to ask forgiveness. Before I even got the words out of my mouth, I would be forgiven, but I would have to accept the forgiveness. My belief in the principle of forgiveness must be real, and I would have to know that the forgiveness was given confessing, either in public or in private, that I had made a mistake. I should then ask for forgiveness. After that, it would be an insult to them if I didn't accept the forgiveness. I shouldn't continue to go around with a sense of guilt, and I should not repeat errors. I should learn, and I should learn from my mistakes. But, I said, how will I know what is the right choice? How will I know what you want me to do? They replied, we want you to do what you want to do. 
That means making choices, and there isn't necessarily any right choice. There are a spectrum of possibilities, and you should make the best choice you can from those possibilities. If you do that, we will be there helping you. I didn't give in easily. I argued that back there was full of problems and that here was everything I could possibly want. I questioned my ability to accomplish anything they would consider important in my world. They said the world is a beautiful expression of the supreme being. One can find beauty or ugliness depending on what one directs one's mind toward. They explained that the subtle and complex development of our world was beyond my comprehension, but I would be able or, but I would be a suitable instrument for the creator. Every part of the creation, they explained, is infinitely interesting because it is a manifestation of the creator. A very important opportunity for me would be to explore this world with wonder and enjoyment. They never gave me a direct mission or purpose. Could I build a shrine or a cathedral for God? They said those monuments were for humanity. They wanted me to live my life to love people, not things. I told them I wasn't good enough to represent what I had just experienced with them on a worldly level. They assured me I would be given appropriate help whenever I might need it. All I had to do was ask. The luminous beings, my teachers, were very convincing. I was acutely aware that not far away was the great being, with what I knew to be the creator. They never said, he wants it this way. But that was implied behind everything they said. I didn't want to argue too much because the great entity was so wonderful and so awesome. The love that was emanating was overwhelming. Presenting my biggest argument against coming back to the world, I told them that it would break my heart and I would die if I had to leave them and their love. Coming back would be so cruel, I said, that I couldn't stand it. I mentioned that the world was filled with hate and competition, and I didn't want to return to that maelstrom. I couldn't bear to leave them. My friends observed that they had never been apart from me. I explained that I hadn't been aware of their presence, and if I went back again, I wouldn't know they were there. Explaining how to communicate with them, they told me to get myself quiet inside and ask for their love. Then... That love would come, and I would know that they were there. They said, You won't be away from us. We're with you. We're all, we've always been with you. We always will be right with you all the time. I said, But how do I know that? You tell me that, but when I go back, there just isn't going to be a nice... It's just going to be a nice theory. They said, Anytime you need us, We'll be there for you, I said. You mean like you'll just appear? They said, no, no, we're not going to be, er, we're not going to intervene in your life in any big way unless you need us to. We're going to be there and you'll feel our presence. You'll feel our, feel our love. After that explanation, I ran out of arguments and I said I thought I could go back. And just like that, I was back. Returning to my body, the pain was there only worse than before. That's the end of the experience as it uh, is 
written on near-death.com. And Howard has more stories and more experiences um, with his near-death experience. Like I said, he has his book, My Descent into Death, uh, which I would recommend. I have not read it myself, but I've but I've read so and listened to so many accounts of his experiences that you really ought to, you know, find more of these experiences, and I'm sure the book has them. Um, I think I will read another one of them tomorrow, one, a, a conversation that he had with Jesus while he was there, and it's, it's just a beautiful description of how love works and so forth, and, and it reflects his, his wonderfully contrary personality. <laughs> as, as you can see, he's arguing with these angels or, or uh, divine beings and uh, trying to make his case for staying behind, but finally he runs out of arguments. They've got an answer for everything, and so he says, all right, I guess I could go back, and boom, he's back. <laughs> so interesting. So many things we could discuss here. I, I don't even know where to start, and yet uh, the uh, experience has so many elements that, uh, that could be discussed. First off, the hellish experience. I mean... Ouch. Ouch. And in some of his other descriptions about this experience, this terrible experience, he's asked, did you feel physical pain? And, and he kind of says yes. And, and yes, there was a sense of physical pain, but there was a much greater sense of humility and absolute, you know, I mean, the idea of being tortured against your will is just a uh, you know, a, a terrible thought, and and that's what he was experience, experiencing. And he he was um, he fought until he could fight no more. And uh, and these beings that lured him off into the darkness. You know, to the question of well, why did he go there? You know, um, some people say well because he was an atheist. You know, but that's not a fair answer because so many atheists appear directly into the light of God. If they're loving people, that's usually where they go, is straight into loving, into the presence of loving beings, loving light, um, loving knowledge. And Howard's experience is very different. And yet, you listen to the way he describes his frame of mind. He's in this angry, frustrated, and just like he's yelling at everybody, swearing at everybody. So... That seems to have invited a company of beings, entities, as he probably would put it, that shared that angry, uh, flustery uh, sense. And that, of course, would be these horrible beings who are afraid of and shun the light and love of God. And the moment he begins to try to... Um, speak to God, it just begins to drive away these terrible beings who had completely worn him out and torn him to shreds. Um, just horrible things they'd done to him. They, they begin to back off as if he's poison or some kind of disease. And he doesn't even have much context to work with. And he's like, the Lord is my shepherd, you know, God bless America. And and our Father who art in heaven, any phrase that used 
the name God in its proper context in a non-obscene sort of way. He, he drew upon that and just started shouting it out until he was finally left alone. And in that silence, in that darkness, he hears his own voice say, um, call out to God. Or, or um, I believe it was, let's see, his, his own voice um, that he had learned, uh, his own voice singing this song, Jesus loves me, yes I know. And it just keeps looping. And he finally screams out in his mind, he says, Jesus, please save me. And then immediately there's this tiny little star in the distance that is moving. And at first he thinks it's some kind of comet or, com- comet or something. And then it's coming toward him. And, and once it reaches him, it engulfs him with love, with light, with sense of forgiveness and healing. His, his wounds, which are probably just horrendous at this point, just melt away. And he is brought uh, up to Christ. It's kind of interesting what he says about his clothing, too. This is unusual. <laughs> um, this is one of the few experiences where I've heard of somebody being naked in the presence of these divine beings. Usually they're in some kind of white robe or something. But according to Howard, he was in his hospital gown when he was following these beings. And there seems to be something of expectation about clothing. Um, What you expect to have, you have. Or if you have no expectations either way, then you have this white robe. Um, If you expect to be in the clothes that you're in, you're in the clothes that you're in. And the fact that these, these terrible beings had torn his clothes from him, he expected to be naked. And so he was, you know. Could he have changed that? I don't know. I, I, I don't know enough about it, but it seems to me that it could have been possible to uh, have it. It was interesting to me that that the uh, angelic beings, these uh, um, loving entities, um, you know, when he says, I, you know, I, I'm naked, you know, <laughs> and he's like, that's fine. They're like, that's fine. It's not a big deal. I know we know how the body works. We know what it is and all that. You know, it's not. It's not anything to be ashamed of kind of thing. And and finally, he just stops trying to hide himself, you know, and and just kind of eases into the experience. That's uncommon um, for someone to be naked like that. But it, clearly it's possible. Clearly it's possible. Anyway, um, what else? His views of the future that he's given... And he's given very clearly that this is all up to agency, which means if you don't fix your ways, this is what you could be headed toward. And if you do fix your ways, this is what you could be headed toward. And the uh, the non-likable situation is really rough. I mean, really, really rough. And yet, it's interesting that he's told, there's not going to be a nuclear war. And he says, well, wait, don't you see how big this threat is and more countries are building up nuclear armaments all the time and they say that there's not going to be a nuclear war yes there might be some accidents here and there with nuclear weapons but there will not be a nuclear war and uh that 
to him is a revelation. I mean, he says, uh, or they tell him that they allow a few wars to happen in order to help people get back to their senses. But they prevent far more from what they said. They prevent far more wars and atrocities than um, they allow, which is very interesting, very interesting. We could be a lot worse <laughs> than we are just by our own choices, but there's some choices God won't allow. And it's a nice thought to think that maybe, just maybe, nuclear war is not one of them. I like that thought. I also really like being a nature guy. I really like that the the positive future that he sees, that it's not, it's not, it doesn't seem to say that there wasn't technology, but that technology was not the focus. In fact, he says that um, he was expecting um, the future to be like Star Wars, where everything was space age, plastics, and technology. And he says the future that I saw was almost no technology at all. But everybody was so just, um, he says, absolutely everyone in this euphoric future spent most of their time doing. The main thing that they, they spend their time doing was raising children. That should tell us something. He says the chief concern of people was children. And everybody considered children to be the most precious commodity in the world. Now, some people might suggest, well, that's because our technology's all gone. No, no, that's not what he says. In fact, he, he, he puts across the impression that technology's great, but it doesn't really matter that much. And it's not that big of a deal. And uh, when we use it properly, then it's used to help us raising children and to build and and bless and protect the planet and the animals and the people on it. If it's being used for those purposes, then it's likely to be around. If it's being used only to destroy each other or to try to compete in, in these, you know, um, tearing down sort of ways, what need have we for it? What good would it do in a society that loves each other? So... Very interesting. Very, very interesting. I like that he says the animals lived with people in harmony. And the fact that they said there was hardly any technology makes me picture. And I've, I've always had this image in my mind, you know, because, you know, you see the Star Trek future, which is, you know, these grand buildings and, and starships and everything so, you know, sleek and beautiful and, and shiny. And yet other than maybe the occasional house plant. There's just not plants there. And I'm like, no, that is, <laughs> I don't see that kind of a future. I see, I imagine more of a future where, yes, we have technology and these and buildings and things like that, but they're absolutely overrun with beautiful foliage and absolutely engulfed in animals and, and plants and life and, 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 beautiful, healthy ecosystems. That's, that's just my thought. But that sounds consistent with what he's seeing. But the primary focus was raising children. It makes me want to be a better dad. It makes me want to be a better um, husband to focus on my family 
and raising these children right, teaching them love, teaching them to respect others, to not judge them, but also to make wise choices. And choices, like he says, um, based on the spectrum that you have, make the best choices you can with the resources that you have. And you'll do fine. The angels will be with you. God will be with you. I love that. Love it, love it, love it. Now, his is one of these experiences that I could go through and analyze and pick apart and just, you know, every little thing in there that he talks about, I, I could go into, uh, I would be fascinated to discuss with people and just have a, a full-on conversation about the implications of it and so forth. And again, you know, he, he sees these possible futures. I'm not a, a big person on the uh, detailed apocalyptic accounts of the future. I'm, I'm just not into that for the simple reason that, like Howard says, it depends on our choices. And so I'm more interested in what we're doing now in order to bring about the great futures and to prevent the uh, bad futures, not not so much of the focusing on what the bad future is going to be and how we can prepare for it and get our bunkers and 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 you know get enough storage to be able to take care of our communities and keep our guns on hand to shoot anybody that tries to eat our food and i mean a lot of times that's what kind of ends up coming out as the flavor of those kinds of discussions and i just don't see value in that not not sufficient value to to merit much discussion but what i do see is an opportunity in these things to see let's make that great future where technology is not the focus, where war is not the focus, where we're they're united in love, and the major work is raising children. I mean, think of all the uh, the jobs out there, if you will, that are based around children, be it around education, be it around um, products and services and, and opportunities for children. And that's not to say that's going to be every focus, but that if that's the major focus, then... What an incredible world we could have. I mean, it's awesome. It's awesome. So, um, again, I'm gonna, we're going to talk more tomorrow about um, a little story that Howard Storm shares that is called Love the Person You're With. And uh, I'll, I'll share that in tomorrow's podcast um, because I think it's worth its own podcast even though it's very short um, but if you would like to contact me um, or or leave a message or comment on the podcast if you'd like to share your experience you can email near death experience podcast at gmail.com or you can go to the podcast itself the podcast website which is near death experience org, where you can leave a comment or you can call 970-NDE-CAST, where you're given three minutes of time to ask a question, leave a comment, or to share your experience. And if you are sharing an experience and need more time, or, or comment or whatever, um, and, and you know as soon as that three minutes hits, just call again, and just continue where you left off, and call again, continue where you left off. Um, it, I'm not bombarded with calls, so you know, even if you don't want to take the time to reintroduce yourself, hi, it's me again, I was saying that, whatever, just pick up where you left off and I'll patch it all together. 
um, and and I'd love to put it on the website. If you don't want your experience shared or your comment shared, um, just tell me so in the email or, or where you do it. If you're just wanting to um, discuss with me personally or have questions or comments, whatever, um, that's fine too. Just let me know that you don't want it share on the podcast. Um, but I would love to hear from you. And also I would love to see more reviews on iTunes, honest ones that, um, that will help people to find the podcast and also provide for me feedback in how I can improve the show. So with that, thank you all of you so much for listening. <laughs>